Welcome to the Pregnantish Podcast, where we show the incredible lengths so many people go to to create their families. Today's episode is presented by Donor Concierge, a leading fertility service helping intended parents navigate the challenging process of finding an egg donor, sperm donor, or surrogate. For more, visit DonorConcierge.com. NASCAR fans may know Samantha Bush as the wife of race car driver Kyle Bush, but in more recent years, more and more have learned that in addition to being a wife, a mom, and a lifestyle blogger, she's also a fierce infertility advocate, both through her nonprofit, The Bundle of Joy Fund, and through her book, Fighting Infertility, Finding My Inner Warrior Through Trying to Conceive, IVF, and Miscarriage. As anyone in the infertility community knows, there is rarely a straight line to parenthood. In Samantha's case, trying to become a mom again after she and Kyle had their son Brexton was one that was full of heartache, setbacks, confusion, and unexpected beauty after they found their surrogate match. Samantha and I recorded this episode earlier in the year before she had her baby girl Lennox through gestational surrogacy. Before we play this episode that we recorded in March of 2022 about her journey with miscarriages, secondary infertility, and surrogacy, we wanted to invite her back for a few minutes to share where she's been at today. I know, Samantha, so much has happened in your world and your family since recording uh, this episode. So in a nutshell, I know it's not easy, but what has happened? Wow. Yeah. So since March, we welcomed Lennox Key Bush uh, on May 10th. And just like everything else in our journey to our children, it did not go as planned whatsoever. My GC and I were very comfortable working with a midwife at the birthing center. You know, her water started leaking and then it broke. And just looking at all the monitoring, it seemed like we were going to have a baby in a few hours and then labor completely stalled out and the baby's heart rate kept dropping. And so they ended up taking us from the birthing center to the main hospital, which everything according to God's plan, because um, Lennox's heart rate was really dropping. And she ended up when she came out, she had the cord wrapped around her neck twice. She was blue. She wasn't making any noise. So they quickly unwrapped the cord and then they suctioned her a little bit while they were waiting for the cord to stop pulsing. But it wasn't until they cut the cord and took her that, thank gosh, they had a specialty nurse there and the machine to kind of suck out all the meconium and the gunk that she had in, you know, her throat and her down her nostrils and everything. And so I just always feel like it might not go how we wanted it to go, but in the end, it's exactly where we needed to be. Oh, that could be the title of a new book about uh, completing our families after hardship with infertility. I like that. Now, you know, it probably all feels surreal that you got here after so many years trying to have her. Um, I, I'm just so, so happy for you. So, you know, you talked about your amazing GC. What, you know, we have some listeners in the audience who are circuits or want to maybe pursue becoming carriers. What would you say to them? Well, first of all, anybody who decides to do that for another family is just absolutely incredible. You know, there are things on both sides that, 
you just have to, I guess the best thing and my advice would be is to really communicate things up front, like what you're both okay with and what would maybe be a hard no for both of you because you don't want to kind of not say anything up front and then get, you know, pregnant and four months into it and maybe one or both of you aren't comfortable with something. And so that was one thing. Our GC and I had a very open dialogue with each other. We really had very similar feelings about a lot of things, which helped. Just, you know, being very upfront, having those kind of awkward or hard conversations, because honestly, in the long run, it makes for the best possible relationship. And so that's what I really found that our GC and I had is that we established things that we both felt like, hey, these are important to us. And then we went through a number of topics and made sure we were aligned on them. And we ended up having a very beautiful and easy relationship throughout the entire journey. I love that. I had the same thing um, with my surrogacy process. There were people that I thought were a match, but it's a relationship, just like any relationship. And both sides need to feel that they're aligned or it just won't work. So I think that's really solid advice. And I, I also, I am forever grateful to anyone who decides to help people like us who can't carry our babies into the world. I think they're just walking angels on earth. Um, why is it still important for you to be part of this community uh, and share your story, this infertility community? I think it's really important to still stay a part of this community. Like, yes, we've completed our family, but there's so many others that are getting ready to start their journey. And I just still think back to when we started and how overwhelmed and lost and scared I felt. And so I definitely think continuing to share so that people feel empowered to be able to go to their doctors and ask the right questions or seek the help that they might need. And then obviously, I think just it's very important to keep it more open in conversation. And um, I love that so many people are speaking out and making it more mainstream because that's really going to help insurance and companies realize that like, okay, this needs to be covered for everyone. This is an astronomical cost that people are going to struggle with to even just have a chance to become parents with one round. And it's just so unfair. Um, And so I think by the more people that speak out and the more people start to understand how common infertility is, that's when we're going to really see shifts in research and insurance coverage and different things like that. Amen. And now back to my conversation with Samantha in March, months before her daughter was born, when we talked about how she navigated tough chapters like miscarriage, what she wishes she knew about surrogacy, and why she kept going to pursue her goal of having another child, despite many setbacks over the years. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me again. Oh my gosh, I don't even know where to begin. I know last time you were hopeful, you had changed clinics. I'm trying to remember all the stuff that went into trying to have a sibling for Brexton. Can you bring us back to what transpired? Yeah, pretty much a whole nother book since then is how I feel. So uh, for listeners, just the background is we tried naturally. We had our son Brexton after the first round of IVF. He will be seven soon. That tells you how long we've been on this journey. We had a miscarriage, a failed cycle, a failed surrogate cycle. And then when we spoke last, I was going to a new clinic to start again. 
Okay, so that's where it gets real, real interesting. So went to the new clinic, had to start over at square one with making embryos again, did a transfer and just a hot mess. So <laughs> we did the transfer. I took the home test, which I'm sure so many listeners like taking that home pregnancy test is just PTSD, flashbacks of all the negatives. So I went back and forth. Do I take it? Do I not? Do I take it? Do I not? And finally the anticipation was killing me. And so I took it and it said pregnant. I was like, oh my gosh, after all this, we've done it. Hallelujah. So the next morning I walk into the clinic and I remember, you know, when you go for that blood draw and I'm like, hello, I am pregnant. Here is my arm. Like take everything you need. Tell me all the good things. And so they called later that day and they're like, okay, well, now no cause for alarm. And you're just like, shit, what? Like, this, no, please, please restart your sentence. Just no cause for alarm, but your beta is very low. It's only like in the forties, but as long as it doubles, we're okay. So of course, like that higher than high feeling less than 24 hours ago just is shattered and you're trying to hold on to hope. And so we go 48 hours later, next blood test. And they call and they said, okay, well, unfortunately it's gone up, but only a little bit it hasn't doubled. But since it's gone up, we'll need you to test one more time. Okay. So we go back in in 48 hours and now my numbers are skyrocketing. So I'm like, am I pregnant? Well, yes, but maybe we have to go for an ultrasound. So we go for an ultrasound and they're like, okay, well, we see a sac. We see a start of like fetal pole. We still can't confirm or deny it. So we wait another week. Then we go back and like, okay, well now we see, but there was a flicker. We're like, okay, that's good. That flicker is a heartbeat, right? Yes. But it wasn't strong enough because it's still so early. So we have to come back again. And the tech is like, oh, oh, like, oh, what? Like what's happening? And so she's like moving the wand around and I'm just waiting for her to say, you know, I'm sorry. She's like, there's two sacks. Excuse me, what? There's what? And she's like, there's two sacks. She's like, I think your embryo, well, not I think, your embryo split. So I'm like, are you telling me we're having identical twins right now? She said, basically, that's what the ultrasound's showing. She's like, I still see a flicker in this one. It's not as strong as we want, but now I see another sack with another fetal pole. So we need you to come back next week. Okay, let's just stop there because what a journey already this is. How did you feel in that moment? So I had gone from we're pregnant, we're not pregnant, we're maybe pregnant, oh, we're good. The ultrasound's not showing right. Well, maybe it is. Maybe everything's so weird because we're having twins. Now I'm just over the moon. Oh my gosh. Now I'm like Googling like names that match, outfits, you know, and everybody's like, oh, you have to be cautiously optimistic. And I'm like, screw that. I'm having twins. Like, this is gonna be awesome. So excited, but nervous. You know, there's, I think even still this far along in our journey, you know, I'll, we'll get to it, but 
our carrier is 31 weeks and I'm still nervous every day. Oh, so, it doesn't go away. When you, when you go through infertility yeah. and loss, it never goes away. So I can only imagine you're balancing that excitement and joy with caution. I felt pretty confident because I was really sick. My boobs hurt. I was hormonals. I am definitely pregnant and not bleeding at all. So I felt good because now, you know, it's 48 hours in between every test. It's a week to 10 days between every ultrasound. So we're, we're like getting some, some time here. So we go in and they said, um, you know, we're sorry. Um, there's nothing in either sack. Your sacks are just growing. There's no baby. And after being in the infertility space for this long, I was like, what, what are you talking about? And they said, well, it's the correct term is a blighted ovum. And it essentially means that your body believes it's pregnant and the sac is growing and you're feeling all the things of pregnancy, but there's no baby. So they took me off all my meds and they're like, all right, well, you should hopefully miscarry naturally. Time went by that wouldn't, didn't happen. My body, even off the meds, was still... Like I, you know, had like the little bump started, not a lot, but you know what I mean? Like, and so they're like, well, you have to make the decision of you're going to have to either take pills or do a DNC. And so thank gosh for this community, because to me, I was like, I don't, I don't want to make this decision. You tell me what to do. They're like, well, it's really your decision. Here's kind of like the medical pros and cons. And, um, so I talked to a few women in the community and ultimately I had to go through a DNC and was, that was a Friday before mother's day. And it was horrific, like not the procedure that, you know, they knock you out and it's quick. That, that was one thing, but just the hope, the anticipation, the excitement, everything. And then, you know, it's just literally ripped away from you. And so that was really hard. And we debated about trying again, but my body after that just was not coming back. Even on birth control, my periods were all over the place. I know in terms of like medical procedures, it's a very quote unquote easy procedure, but I think the after effects on your body aren't as easy. I totally, totally agree. I even after my DNC got new scar tissue, which became an issue for me and in future attempts to try to conceive. So I think you're totally right. Even though miscarriage affects what they say one in four, it's probably even more than that. I mean, that's what's reported. This is traumatic emotionally and on the body. And I think we need to pause and acknowledge that. I completely agree. I think you know, it's interesting facing a natural miscarriage and I mean, it's scary. It's messy. It's bloody. It's very traumatic. And I wouldn't say that there's closure, but how do I explain this? I don't know if it's because it's more natural and you go through it, not like instantly. For me, I recovered better from that physically and I wouldn't say mentally because after our first miscarriage, it was very, very mentally hard, but there was just something about going through the process versus when you do a DNC, like they knock you out and you're up and it's done. And it's very quick and it's very stark and kind of harsh. 
And, you know, I didn't feel much discomfort. I slept most of the day, but it's like you went from potentially having twins and all these things to just, you know, a few hours later, it was like, it's gone. You're done. Like, yeah, your dream is just, yep. Psh, just the door gone. So, so that, that was hard. That's that so was, hard. That was hard. How did you and your family, because now you have Rexton and Kyle and everybody, you are physically going through the miscarriage, but your family, right? They're also going through it. How was it for them? It was just a very somber time. It was, you know, like I said, it was, I was still recovering and it was Mother's Day and it was just sad. Sad isn't, I don't feel like a strong enough word for it, but that's, that's what it was. It was like, wow, this was supposed to be the whole joyous time and, you know, we were going to celebrate and everybody, Kyle and I were so excited. And, you know, at that point, like I said, it was, it was about nine, 10 weeks. So we were in it. So it was hard. It was, it was a really hard time. And then I was, had to come to the point they were like, okay, you know, your cycle's not getting back on track. We can wait. You have to wait a certain number of months after a DNC to even try again. And I was like, I, no, this just isn't working. Um, I'm going to reach out to our surrogate who we had used the cycle before and see if she'd be willing to do it again. Wow. Well, I know through being an intended parent and having a surrogacy experience, the stakes are so high because you don't, you know, you may know that your uterus can't necessarily carry the pregnancy or you're not comfortable trying that again for for good reason. But I imagine because it didn't work the first time, did you all have a bit of, you know, PTSD from that trying again? Completely. And the hardest part is with the doctor, you know, he said something to me. And at the time I was kind of like, oh, kind of harsh, but also kind of accurate. He's like, well, some bodies just don't take pregnancy as well as others. But I, but I did it once. It's, yeah, well, that was seven years ago now, you know. And so he was like, we should really look at the possibility if your surrogate's open to it. And I say surrogate. And then gestational carrier, I think we should also, gosh, those terms are so intertwined. And some people are like, that's not the right term. This is the right term. It's very, very confusing. But anyways, and so she was open to it and there was apprehension, you know, you just kept praying and hoping that it was going to work. And, and this time it finally did. So we, we joke when we started all this, um, my husband and his brother are seven years apart. My brother and I are seven years apart. Like the only thing we want is for our kids to be close together in age and how it's going to play out is almost to the day they will be seven years apart. <laughs> I hope it's a lucky number seven in this case, but that yeah. is crazy. I know you do start to see these patterns. Um, my embryo that eventually was carried by my first cousin as my gestational carrier, my gestational surrogate. And for those who don't know, that means that it's Samantha, in this case, in my case, it was our genetic embryo put in another body as the yes. carrier. Unlike traditional surrogacy, which I think so many people associate with surrogacy where you're not genetically related to the embryo. I think people have a lot, I, I know, I don't even think, misconceptions about surrogacy where they think oh, yes. it's like babies for sale and wombs for rent and we're a pregnantish constantly and I'm sure Samantha you are too constantly battling that but we had a weird pattern too my embryo was taken out 
up to the day in 2016 in April that it was put back into my cousin two years later to the day. And in those two years, we went through hell and back trying to match with surrogates, trying to drop out on us. We went through, but the fact that it landed for you with the seven years and for us with the same transfer date as the embryo, the egg was taken out of me and created as an embryo, you just start to feel like this is a little, this is a little cosmically weird, right? Right. So, you know, and I know that there are so many things misunderstood about surrogacy. What are some things that you have encountered in your journey in terms of feedback and misconceptions, you or Kyle? What have you faced? You know, well, first of all, I think not even just the misconceptions of people not understanding surrogacy, but from what our misconceptions were with walking into having to use an agency and go through this whole process. So when Kyle and I went to the agency, we very much felt like it was like match.com. You're going to go to this agency and you're going to fill out this profile and put all your nice family pictures and tell all of your attributes. And then they were going to match you with a number of women and you were going to go look at their stuff. And it felt very much to me like what a dating website would be. And I think the first big wake up call was we did all this stuff and we analyzed over our profile and, you know, just wanted somebody to be like, Oh, this is a nice family. Like I, I would carry for them. You know, they look normal ish and that feels right. And we do all the things. And then the agency was like, okay, well at this moment we actually, you know, don't have anybody right now. And then this was like a few months before COVID hit, which made it even worse. But I think that was a big misconception on our part. I think another thing that we get is just the whole genetic makeup. You know, I've had people that are like, oh, so it's not, you're not like genetically related to your baby. So it's her, like her egg with Kyle's sperm. And I'm like, no, no, no. My egg, his sperm, the embryo, it's frozen. And she's a carrier. So many have misconceptions about surrogacy, and I certainly face this as well as an intended parent. The road to surrogacy is rarely easy, but so often rewarding. That's why it's so important to align with a reputable agency and team to help you navigate this process. And this is why I'm happy to share more on Donor Concierge, who supported today's episode. Donor Concierge focuses on matching you with the best surrogate who meets your clinic requirements and is a good fit for you. They pioneered the parent choice model. Rather than going to an agency and waiting to be matched, Donor Concierge presents you with gestational carrier candidates who are available now. In fact, their wait time for matching is significantly less than if you were to go with just one agency and they only work with agencies who are trustworthy and ethical and who have been vetted by their expert team. Through an extensive network of the best fertility industry connections that they've formed over their 25 years in the field, Donor Concierge provides access to 25,000 plus donors and available surrogates, more than 250 partner agencies, and top fertility clinics. The Donor Concierge team has facilitated thousands of successful matches and is recognized as an international leader in third-party fertility. 
To book a consult or to find out more, visit DonorConcierge.com. And now back to Samantha on some of the challenges and opportunities she faced as she navigated the surrogacy process. And so I legit explained it to adults, how I explained it to my son. So <laughs> we told him we got out cookies and stuff and we made them and we put them on the tray and we got them all ready and I put them in the oven and I was like, oh man, our oven's broke. So my good friend lives right down the street. So I was like, let's go take these to Auntie Bree's house and cook them and, or bake them. And I was like, hey, Brexton, so if we take our cookies and bake them at Auntie Bree's and then bring them back home, are they our cookies or Auntie Bree's cookies? He's like, well, they're our cookies. Our oven's broke. <laughs> and I was like, perfect. That's okay. right. So mommy's oven is broke. Her belly is broke. And that's why your sister is going to be carried with somebody else because her belly works. And so once we explained that to him and even adults, everybody was like, Oh, yeah. You know, it's funny, Samantha. We told that same story when my first cousin was carrying my daughter, Arielle. She told her kids the same story. You know, cousin Andrea's belly is broken. And I've told this story before, but I think it's kind of funny that they were scared to see me when I was coming over later <laughs> that day because they thought it would be like blood and guts everywhere because right. my belly was broken. So she edited it to say, Andrea's belly is not broken. It can make a baby. It can't grow the baby. So we ch we changed it for the five-year-olds who didn't understand what broken meant. But all of this to say, to your point, the average person, not just children, do not understand that your genetic baby can be carried by someone else and that a uterus is, you know, has to be the right uterine environment to be able to m not only make the baby grow the baby, bring the baby safely into the world, and now you are pregnant-ish, and that is such a beautiful thing. So what was that like when she, you did the transfer and you got the positive test? When did that happen? Well, first of all, so we went through a number of potential surrogates. So the first one, she was amazing. We went through all the things together because you do the meetings and then the family meetings and the psych evaluations and all the things and the contracts and this, this and that. And then she had a blocked fallopian tube, which they were like, I'm sorry, we can't proceed. And then the agency found us someone, but it just, it wasn't a match. And then we had somebody who we went through all the steps with. And then she came back a few weeks later and was like, you know, I just think we're I'm out with my family in life right now. It's not a time right now, but maybe in a year or two. So then when we finally met our match, I was so nervous. I always equated to like a, a super high stakes first date, if you will. And I was in panic. I mean, just what to wear, what to say, what to order, because you want this woman that you don't know to be like, oh yeah, I'm going to do this because it's a, huge thing for somebody to literally, I say, like, for lack of a better word, like give up their body for that period of time for another family. You know, that's huge. It's a huge sacrifice. Huge. And they're also literally delivering life. Could we have any higher stakes than that? Right. And so like you want them to like you. And I would say like a, when we had surrogates that didn't work out, 
it almost felt like another failed cycle, you know, because you put all your hope and all of your energy and all of your things into it. And then when it doesn't work out, you're like, okay, I'm back to square one. Okay, I'm back to square one again. So, you know, now we we went, we did the transfer and it's great. I always say she's amazing and like there's absolutely nothing wrong with what she's doing. It's all on me. Like it's very hard for me to not be in control, right? It's not like you could lock her upstairs and like be like, this is what you have to eat and this is what you have to do for nine months. Like they live their lives with their family and you live your life. And like we text every other, you know, every day, every other day, we see each other, the family see each other, but you're not with your baby every waking moment, like when you're pregnant or mm-hmm. every, every moment, not every waking moment, every constant moment, you, it's hard, like not to be able to monitor the kicks and not to, you know, when I had carried Brexton, I talked to him all the time. I patted him all the time in my belly. Like he was my little companion. And, and so that's, I'm not going to lie. That's hard. That's mm-hmm. that bonding when you're pregnant that you do is, it's hard. I kind of feel like like an out of town dad, to be honest with you. You get to see her and put your hand on her belly and get the pictures, but you're not with her every single day. I, I don't know how it's not that I am ungrateful. It's not that I am not super blessed to be in this position, but from an emotional standpoint, it some days are are hard, you know, mm-hmm. you, you want that. Yeah, no, I know deeply because, um, you know, with with my cousin, the same thing, we're so close and I was able to, she sent me pictures and she said, do you want to record your voice and, you know, all these things. But I think that's one thing that the public may not realize when they say just get a surrogate. Um, there's no just about it for anyone involved. There's no just about it. It is an incredibly emotionally, financially, physically exhaustive process for everybody. And that's why we have psychologists involved and all these people yep. weighing in. And I very much relate to you, Samantha, with what you're saying about feeling like the out-of-town dad because, you know, when I would at- when I would attend appointments with Alana, I felt like, well, I'm to the side. Am I in her space too much? <laughs> but this is this is our precious uh, baby in the belly, and so I, I I get that so deeply. With all the loss and all the experience you've gone through bringing this baby into the world, how has it changed you? I think the biggest changes, and it's hard to convey to people that haven't gone through all the losses is the amount of fear every single day that something's going to go wrong. You know, even though, quote unquote, we're 31 weeks, we're in the clear. I feel like after you've gone through so much, you're just always waiting for that call of, hey, this isn't, you know, something happened. Um, and so that that's hard. And just the panic of, you know, at the ultrasounds, the text, they always think I'm crazy. Cause I'm like, are you sure that's okay? Like, is everything okay? Is there anything that you see that's not okay? Like perfectly okay. And they're like, calm down. It looks great. I'm like, but like on a one to 10 of great, like it's like a, <laughs> like a 10, or yeah. like a five, like where are we at? I need, I need a real number. And they're like, take a breath. And I'm like, I can't, like I'm always stressed. And you, I try not to 
you know, put that on my family or on her, but, you know, in my mind, it's a constant and it's a constant of, I don't know, like, is everything okay? When you're not caring, there's, there's such a loss of control. And I think for like type A people like me, it's, it's maddening at times. <laughs> yeah, I get that I too. Because I don't want to be that crazy person and text mm-hmm. her like, what are you eating? Have you had water today? <laughs> like, what's happening? And she would probably understand if you did, but I, but I hear you so much on that. By the way, I'm kind of curious how this compares to how you or Kyle feel when he's in the race car. Is, are there any similarities to that? I mean, I just thought of the adrenaline and the and the goalposts. Like, is that crazy or do you see a connection here? I think the emotions are so different. Like, that's his job and I want him to do well. I want him to stay safe. So in that sense, with our carrier, like, I want the pregnancy to do well. I always want her to be safe. But I guess a little bit too the same as when he straps in the car and goes to race. Like I have no control what happens on the track. So yeah, I can see those similarities. Um, I think maybe because I'm so used to Kyle racing, my anxiety and emotions, not always, but are a little bit more tame where with our baby, it's like daily, mm. daily nerves and not for anything that she's doing whatsoever. Cause she's amazing. Like it's probably with our crazy lives and traveling and stress, like our baby's probably in a much calmer, like she's a very (laughs) calm person. I'm a very intense person. So I'm always joking. I'm like, you know, she's probably like doing yoga in there. Very (laughs) calm where I'm a little bit more go, go, go. But it's just that lack of control of just, and companionship, I think, are the two things that are really hard. Of course. How's Brexton feeling about a baby sister coming? He's so excited. But I will say, like, he's more than ready to have her here. But in the last probably two weeks, the questions have been coming. So, like, are you going to, like, always love me the best because (laughs) I'm the oldest? And, you know, you try to do the... Well, I'll love you guys equally and you're both my children and that wasn't working for him but you've known me longer so clearly you you're <laughs> gonna like me more right and so we're starting to get a little bit of that I think just with you know people sending gifts for the baby and that little bit of I get it I was seven years older than my brother and at first I was so excited and then when everybody's like "Ooh, baby you're like well, wait a second here. <laughs> you guys are supposed to be paying attention to me. So I, I mean, I definitely see where he's coming from and I'm definitely doing things to be aware of his feelings because I, I do remember a bit how it was. How has it changed your marriage, this whole chapter of infertility and loss? Because last time we spoke, your book is really grounded in that, that storytelling So how has it continued to change your relationship with Kyle? So I think, and I do talk about it a lot in the book because I think it's something a lot of people, and still sometimes I don't get comfortable talking about it, but infertility takes a huge toll on your marriage because it somehow seeps in to everything, 
every relationship, every part of your day, it just seeps in. And so I feel like with the struggles we went through in the past, we now are armed with better communication and coping mechanisms from therapists and books and things like that, that we're able to get through the losses. And also, I think (laughs) a little bit of Kyle's rubbing off on me. So I think most men in general are, you know, black and white, this or that. Okay, this is the problem. This is the solution. They take a lot of emotion out of it. And I felt like I've had to take some emotion out of it and accept that, okay, I can't stay pregnant. If we want a sibling for Brexton, this is our option. And even though there is anxiety and a loss of a sense of control and, you know, some sadness about not getting to experience like the kicks and, you know, all that stuff. You kind of have to look at it. I look at it like, like, this is the solution and this is the hand that you're dealt. And so you're going to, I wouldn't say get through it because like I said, she's wonderful. So there's not like a getting through it, but these are, this is the hand you're dealt and you're going to accept it and you're going to keep moving forward. That's all you can do. Like I can't hold her hostage and hold her belly all day long, even though I would love to. And be there with her every day. And I mean, you get it. You, you do what you can. And I think that's a mantra for infertility. Uh, it's definitely a mantra when you're going through surrogacy and you're an intended parent, but for anyone going through a life challenge like infertility and modern family building, doing what you can with what you have, accepting that things are the way they are when you wish they were different. Well, that is what we all have to face. And it's a good life lesson beyond this chapter. Is there anything else you want to add for listeners who are really listening deeply because they're struggling? I think one thing I talk about a lot is setting boundaries and they're just so important. And I think a lot of people are afraid to bring it up with a spouse, a relative or a friend about how you're feeling because you're so afraid you're going to hurt somebody's feelings. But what I've learned is when I communicate with people like, Hey, this is what I'm feeling. And this is what I need. Like, can you help me right now with this? Or can you accept this? That those people actually appreciate the honesty. So to give like a real example, there were times during our miscarriage when I wanted a friend to just go for a walk with me. And I wanted to talk about everything else except babies or infertility. Like, tell me about your day. Tell me what you're cooking. Tell me about a vacation. Tell me anything. Just talk to me without talking about baby stuff. And then there's times that, you know, you're you're like, to Kyle, I'm really hurting right now. And I have a lot of emotions and I need to just let them out and, and talk to you about how upset I am about X, Y, or Z related to infertility. And instead of, you know, not saying anything, picking a fight, those little things, I think people appreciate when you directly come to them and say, this is, this is my mental space. This is what's going on. This is what I need. And I also tell people, you can't though expect those people in those relationships, you know, family, spouse, friend, if their mental capacity isn't there to be able to give you what you need, you also have to be able to accept that. And that's why I think sometimes a therapist or a life coach is great because that's 
what they're mm-hmm. there for. You know what I mean? And they'll be able to, on an objective level, talk you through mm-hmm. everything. 100%. Samantha, I am so excited for us to follow along as you expand your family. And I know we can hold the space for you even when you're so nervous. We, we are cheering from the, the sidelines. And where can people find you to follow along, follow your story? Yeah, so on social media, I'm at Samantha Bush, B-U-S-C-H. I have a website, samanthabush.com. And yep, gonna we actually go for a 3D ultrasound this Thursday, so I'm excited. Brexton sat with his feet in front of his face, so we never got to see anything with him, but maybe maybe she'll give us a glimpse. <laughs> I hope she gives you a smile. I am. I'm smiling. Yes. Thank you. We look forward to, to following along, and thank you again for rejoining us on the Pregnantish Podcast. Yes, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. And thank you for listening to another inspiring episode of Pregnantish. We know that our guests go to great lengths to create their families despite heartbreaking, hard, tricky circumstances. And I think that's why this storytelling is so extraordinary and important. Until next time.